Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. On today's broadcast, Jordan Weathers speaks from the subject of Changes and Seasons. And now here is today's message. It's a, a simple question to ask and maybe a simple one to answer, uh, but the scenario of this question is anything but simple. And so my question is this, I'll put it in context for you. My question is this, who in here, and I'd love to see a show of hands, who in here likes change? Relishes change, delights in change, runs toward change. I see two, two hands, three, three hands. There were two hands, first service, three hands. Let me tell you, something's wrong with you guys. But no, honestly, most of us don't like change. We run from change. We hide from change. Change is uncomfortable. It's terrifying. We become creatures of habit, creatures of comfort, and we want things to stay the same by and large. Or at least if things are going to change, we don't want to change along with them. Right? I mean, think about, this is just an aside, but think about how up in arms people get when a menu changes at a restaurant. Right? The spicy chicken biscuit went away at Chick-fil-A, and you people didn't act like Christians. You stormed the gates, demanded that it be put back on the menu. People don't like change. And, and I think it's universal, and I'm going to illustrate it with one of my favorite shows of all time. Those who know me well know that I love Boy Meets World. In fact, I went last month to meet the, the cast of Boy Meets World, if that gives you any indication of how much I love the show. And the reason I love it is this. I love the emotion. I love the real-life issues that the show portrays. It's wholesome. It's good. They deal with faith in several of the episodes. Um, and, and so I love the show for many reasons, but I've always identified with the main character, Corey Matthews, and his response to situations has always been very similar to mine. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to detail an episode All right, so spoiler alert, even though I don't know how much of a spoiler alert you have to issue for a show that's been out for more than 20 years, but spoiler alert because there's a season five episode that I've always particularly enjoyed because it is my life. All right, so I'm going to break it down for you. So so remember, this is Corey, main character, and this is all the stuff that happens to him. Ready? So first, everybody gets their acceptance letters to college except for his best friend. All right, so now he's got to deal with that. Then his girlfriend gets an acceptance letter to Yale, and so now he lives in Philadelphia, and they're going to try and figure out, okay, how do we stay together? And then he goes home to see his parents, says, hey, I got into college. They're like, great, we're expecting a baby, and we're going to repaint your bedroom. And then his beloved teacher, Mr. Feeney, says, I'm going to retire, and in fact, I'm going to move from Philadelphia to uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So he's dealing with that. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll take my little sister and we're going to go to Chubby's, which is this burger joint that's been in the show since the second season. It's this place that they can always go to, comfort, food, good people. And they get there, they sit down, and right as they sit down in their favorite booth, they wheel the table away, wheel in a barrel, and tell them that it's been transformed into a pirate-themed restaurant. And needless to say, he handles none of it well. Has anyone in here ever had a day like that? where everything is changing all around you. It's a whirlwind. You don't know what's going on. You're trying to get your footing. You're trying to find a place where that you can say, okay, this is stable. This is secure. I know I've been there. And if we're honest, that's life a lot of times. Constant change. Constant uh, change around us, within us. And I think for a lot of us, it's uncomfortable and it's unbearable at times because it's the unknown. 
really. It's, it's hectic and it's heavy and it's difficult and we don't understand. And because of the unknown, we run from it. At least I've always ran from it. And lately what I'm trying to do is put on my big boy pants and face change in a more um, responsible way, I guess you could say. Uh, so I recently changed jobs. And that was an incredibly stressful period. I just finished my first week. Everyone throughout the week was like, how's it going? Is it going great? And I was like, I don't know. We'll see. Caitlin and I recently bought a car. And that was, hands down, the most stressful thing I've ever done. It made me, literally, I kid you not, want to throw up on multiple occasions. Sick to my stomach. The guy's like, do you want the, you know, he's asking me questions. I'm like, just hold on. Let me, let me deal with some stuff first. So I don't deal well with change. And maybe you don't either. But I'm here to tell you today, I'm here to, uh, to give you this premise, and it's this, change is necessary. As difficult as it may be, as heavy as it can feel, change is a necessary part of life. And think about it. We have to change. We have to go through things, because if you're not different today than you were five or ten years ago, something's wrong. You need to do some self-analysis. And look, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, hobbies and interests. I just told you I'm into a show that's more than 20 years old. I love Star Wars. It's a movie franchise that's more than 40 years old. All right, some things never change. There are things about your personality that are ingrained and that are sort of tentpole things for you. But what I am talking about is your passions and your pursuits. Those things need to be reevaluated, right? Where you spend your time, your money, your energy. You need to look at those things and say, okay, are they lining up with where I am currently in my life? Are they matching who I am today? And, and we have to think about these things, and it's, it's easy to see in the world around us that change is a part of life. It's a necessary part of life, because think about the metamorphosis that happens in nature. A caterpillar has to become a butterfly. There's no other way around it. All right? A tadpole does turn into a frog. Okay? These changes happen. They're a part of life. And I know that change is good, and my wife knows that change is good, because if I didn't change, I would still be that nine-year-old kid with an earring and a rat tail, and I'd be really, 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 like, way too much into wrestling. I would eat cereal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I'd buy all the Lego sets that money could buy, and I would have no wife and no kids. That's how I know change is real. That's, what, that's sort of the litmus test for me that says, okay, I'm different. I've gone through a process. I've gone through a change. So we know that it's a necessary part of life, but I'm going to give you another premise that I think is even more difficult to swallow, and it's this. Change is good. Not only is it necessary, but change is good. And it doesn't always feel like it in the moment. I'll be the first to tell you that, but as Christians... We must change, and the change that we endure is good because it is part of what we call the process of sanctification. And so if, if you're unfamiliar with this word, let me explain it a little bit. So we, we seek the Lord. We receive the free gift of salvation. There's a, a, a moment of change that happens at that point. So instantaneous sanctification by which we're changed in the eyes of God. No longer are we viewed in His eyes as a sinner. We are now blameless and righteous. But then we carry out through our lives the process of sanctification to look and act more like Jesus. So we have to change. And change is good because it's bringing about good things in our lives. And, and 
we know this because there's plenty of scriptural evidence for the importance of change. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you three. We're going to look at three. There's a lot more. But first I want to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now there's going to be sections where we sit in scripture for a while. There's going to be other times when we're just sort of popping in and out. So if you're a fast Bible flipper, then I challenge you to keep up. The gauntlet has been thrown, okay? Uh, if you're not a fast Bible flipper, that's why we have these screens. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. That's a change, that's a transformation. And who in here is excited that the new life has begun? Right? I for one am excited that the old life is gone, that the things that I used to do, my old passions, my old pursuits are no longer what I focus on. So this is that thing that I said, that instantaneous sanctification. The old life has passed away, the new life begins. But it continues. So let's look at Ezekiel 36, 26. This is in the Old Testament. And this is what God's saying to the people of Israel. He's saying, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And look, this is a people who had been through tumultuous change. This is also a people who at this given point in history were not doing very good with God. They weren't living righteously. They were oppressed by their enemies, but God spoke into this people and said, I'm going to change you. And this change, difficult as it may seem, is good. Wouldn't you agree that going from a stony, stubborn heart to a tender, responsive heart is a good change? But they had to go through difficult things to get there. And the third place in Scripture that we'll look is quite possibly the most well-known verse on the subject of change, and it's Romans 12.2. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That key word there is transform. You may be familiar with another uh, uh, interpretation or translation of the verse. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed. To be transformed is a metamorphosis, is a total change. It means that you look nothing today like you did yesterday. It's a total process of change. We have to grow. We have to change. We have to learn. We have to develop. It's necessary and it's good. But how does God bring about these changes in our lives? How do we begin to see ourselves transforming into more of the person that He's created us to be? Well, it happens through interactions with other Christians around us, conversations that maybe we have with those who are also believers. It happens through encounters with His Word. It happens through uh, songs, maybe in church or on the radio, that really strike right to the core of who we are. It can happen in a lot of different ways. In fact, I think those ways are more incremental, right? God may reveal something to you that needs to change and you're able to address it. These are sort of the little things along the way. But I'm here to propose to you today that those sweeping changes, those broad changes that God brings about in our lives, are the result of the seasons we endure. And specifically, the difficult seasons that we endure. God uses those times to shape us and mold us and transform us. And so this morning, we're going to talk about some seasons. Uh, but before we do, I want to again give you scriptural evidence for the seasonality, the cyclical nature of life. And so if you've ever heard of Solomon, Solomon is considered by most to be the wisest man who ever lived. 
but that did not come without some shortcomings and sins, pratfalls and hang-ups. He had a lot of stuff that he dealt with. And so he wrote this book of Ecclesiastes in which he begins to give us some wisdom. He begins to impart on us some of the knowledge that he picked up through these missteps along the way. And he says in chapter 3, so Ecclesiastes 3.1, this is what he writes, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. And he goes on, we're not going to read the rest of the, uh, the seven verses that follow, but he goes on to describe many different seasons that we can endure. And if we studied each season in depth, we'd be here all day, and I want to be respectful of your time and uh, let you get to wherever you're trying to go. So we're only going to look at three, but the reality is that we go through seasons, some good, some not so good. I said we're going to look at three, and I know that at least one person in here thought, you, you didn't say it, thankfully, but you thought, Jordan, don't you know that there are four seasons? Yes, I do. I also went to public school, and though they failed me in many areas, they did succeed in telling me that there are four seasons. Uh, But let's be honest, we who live in Georgia know that there are way more than four seasons anyway. Okay? Can I get a witness on that one? Right? Because there's that weird thing that happens where it's like 80 degrees right before a snowstorm. Or that thing, and it happened here at church on Wednesday, I don't know if you saw it, where it is somehow both sunny and raining at the exact same time. So there's a lot of weird weather patterns in Georgia. There's a lot of weird seasons that we can endure in life, but we're only going to focus on three. And I also want to say we're going to walk through some difficult seasons. And I'm going to be real and I'm going to be honest, and I hope that you'll be receptive to that honesty. But I know that there are countless, great, joyful, mountaintop seasons in the life of a Christian. I am not trying to paint with broad strokes and say that the life of a Christian is wrought with strife or depression But if we're being honest with ourselves to get to where God has us to go, sometimes we have to walk through these difficult parts of life. Amen? So we're going to look at three seasons. And while we look at them, we're going to talk about some things that God might be trying to show us or the way that he might be trying to change us. All right, so the first season that we're going to look at today is a season of grief. A season of grief. So you might enter this season of your life after losing someone or something close to you, a loved one, a friend, or a family member. You begin to deal with that grieving process and you ask yourself when you'll see the light of day again. You may feel distant from God, you may feel distant from others, and try as you might, throughout this season there will be periods in which you can't seem to shake the dark cloud that looms overhead. It's a reality. It's a difficult reality, but I'm here to tell you this morning that you're not alone. And this is where me being real starts because I want to tell you you're not alone first by pointing to my own life and my own example. Because this is a season that I've walked through time and time and time again. Let me begin by saying that when I was nine years old or almost nine years old, my mother passed away. I I didn't know my father. He wasn't in the picture. And as a result, that single moment in time led to tumultuous change, great difficulty. I lived in Nebraska. Suddenly I was moved from Nebraska to Georgia. I lived with a new family. I was adopted by my godparents. I lived with a new family in a new house, in a new state. I went to a new school. I had to make new friends. It was incredibly, incredibly difficult. And at the time, being that I was so young, I didn't fully understand what had really just happened. 
I didn't fully understand the impact that that single moment in time would have on me throughout the next 20 years. As a kid, all I remember, literally, truly, all I remember of the, of, of the day of my mother's passing, or, or her funeral rather, was that I got to go out and eat ice cream. So it shows the very limited scope that I had at the time. But I can tell you that in time, I grew to mourn her passing more fully, to better understand the weight that it placed upon me. Um, and if you've been in a season of grief, you may begin to notice some of these, these chips, these chinks in your armor, if you will, these idiosyncrasies, these emotions, these responses. And sometimes, if I'm being fully honest, it's like a switch flips, and I'll go from happy to sad in an instant. It weighs heavy on you at times. It's not easy. Over time, I began to see things like uh, seasonal depression that I would deal with at certain points of the year, that certain moments, certain songs, certain interactions would bring about this sadness and it would well up in me. I began to ache for her to be there at certain key moments in my life, like my wedding day or the birth of my two children. It took 10 years for me to finally go back for me to finally say goodbye and visit her gravestone. And let me be the first to tell you that it's taken twice as long for me to fully mourn her passing, for me to finally grieve, for those floodgates to finally open. And I remember where I was. I'm being just incredibly transparent with you. I remember where I was. We had just gone to see, Caitlin and I had just gone to see the Tom Hanks movie, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. It's a poignant, emotional movie that centers on the tragedy of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And I remember as the credits started to roll, I felt something in me break. And I began sobbing. And she rushed me out of the theater and we went and sat in our car. And for the next indiscernible amount of time, I wept like a child. Because the movie had captured the emotions. It had captured the feelings. It had captured the dread and the weight that I carried with me every day since that moment when I was eight and a half. But I stand before you today as a man on the other side. And it wasn't easy, and it's not easy now. I'm not here to propose to you or to pretend that I'm perfect. There are days when that sad switch gets flipped. But what I can tell you is that having walked through it, having endured it, and emerged on the other side, I can tell you confidently and excitedly that there are more days than not when I can wake up and feel genuinely happy. And it can happen for you too. And what I want to do before I go any further is I want to give a quick PSA. We have a small group, we have a program here called Grief Share. And if you're walking through a season of grief, let me be the first to tell you, not only are, are you not alone, but you don't have to deal with it alone. You can meet with other people who are dealing with similar things and you can share openly your experiences with them. It's a faith-based program that walks you through the grieving process to ultimately receive full total healing. If you're interested in that, if that's you today, see me after service, pull me aside, get the details from me. I'd love to get you connected because you don't have to suffer in silence. You don't have to do it on your own. There's hope. And I know you're not alone because of my own experience but I also know you're not alone because of the experience of someone in the Bible. And perhaps you've heard of, of a man named Job. 
You have a compatriot in me, you have a compatriot in Job, someone who's endured it. Because Job was a man of incredible faith, yes, but he only received that incredible faith after walking through a season of incalculable loss. Of dealing with grief the likes of which none of us, arguably, has never experienced. Everything he loved, everything he had was taken from him. And let me point out something about the seasons that we're going to discuss today. These seasons sometimes are brought about by our own experiences. They're brought about by our own foolish decisions, certainly. But nine times out of ten, they're things that are happening to us. No fault of your own. But regardless of the reason for the season, it is brought about, it is allowed by God. So the things that I dealt with, the things that I endured, likewise the things that Job dealt with, were allowed by God. None of the seasons that we'll discuss today catches God off guard. Amen? He's not surprised by our sudden change in fortune. He allows it again for the process of our growth and our change. And so you see Job and he's lost everything. And this is his response. I just want to focus on three responses that he says in response to this loss that he's dealt with. So if you look at Job 3.11, this is a place where we camp out. So if you're a fast flipper, you can go to Job. We're going to camp for a second. Job 3.11, in response to this great loss in this season of grief, this is what he says. Why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? He's bitter. He's upset. The grief of all that he's lost weighs heavy upon him. Just, just 15 verses later in 3.26, this is what he says. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. And then if we look many chapters later, so if we're thinking, okay, that was just at the beginning, it changed over time. We're looking many chapters later where he's talked with his friends, where he's wrestled with God, and he's had this conversation that's gone throughout this book. And in Job 30, 15 through 17, he still says, I live in terror now. My honor has been blown away in the wind, and my prosperity has vanished like a cloud. And now my life seeps away. Depression haunts my days. At night my bones are filled with pain which gnaws at me relentlessly. Those who have walked through a season of grief or who may be there now know these feelings well. The feelings of being alone. The sleepless nights. The pain. The sadness. But there's an incredible thing that happens near the end of the book of Job. It happens right before God blesses him or in the midst of that blessing, rather, in the restoration of all that Job had lost. And this is the exchange that happens. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I want, I want to read it to you verbatim. This is what it says. It says right here, it's in Job 42.5. So if you're taking notes, Job 42.5, go there. Incredibly poignant verse. Ready? He's talking with God, and this is what he says. Job says, I had heard of you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. Prior to everything that he went through, he only had second-hand knowledge of God. He had only heard of God. But as a result of passing through this season of grief, he can now say with confidence to the Lord God Almighty, Now I know you. Only now do I really see you. And that's the incredible power of walking through a season of grief. He knew and he acknowledged that the Lord was with him. And how do we know that the Lord was with him? Because multiple verses in Scripture tell us so. This is sort of a rapid fire. These won't be on the screen, but Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. It's a promise. 
if you are brokenhearted, if you are in the midst of a season of grief, God is there with you. In Matthew 5, 4, this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the Beatitudes, one of the blessed are those, is those who mourn. Why are they blessed? Because they will be comforted. It's a promise. It's an assurance. And we carry with us each and every day the promise of Revelation 21, 4, which says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And get this. This is the promise. Ready? One day... There will be no more pain, no more death, no more mourning, and no more crying. One day, you may be in a season of grief right now, but hear me clearly, you are not alone. God is right there with you. His word promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. And in fact, he draws nearer to you in times of discomfort, in times of weariness, in times of brokenheartedness. He's there. In response to his presence, we must act. And let me tell you, I just want to speak very clearly, very plainly here. Do not listen to anyone who will tell you that seeking help by attending grief share or speaking with a trained professional is a sign of weakness. I fear, church, too often we shame those who deal with depression. And we tell them, if only you had prayed more. If only you trusted God more. If only you read your Bible every day, like me. We may not say these things verbatim, but I guarantee you we've thought them. Seeking help because of the results of a season of grief does not make you a weakling. In fact, I'm here to postulate today that it makes you a warrior because it shows that you're not going to take it lying down, that you're going to exhaust every option to get the healing that God has for you. So seek help if help is needed. But know and believe and be encouraged that God is right there with you. So what change is God bringing about? What change is he trying to, uh, to get us to as a result of a season of grief? I think it's this. To make us more dependent on Him. Because if every change that we endure is a part of the process of sanctification, if every change that we endure is trying to make us more like Christ, Christ did not speak, did not act, did not move unless the Father told Him so. We must be dependent on God. That's the change. As a result of our seasons of grief, We'll learn to become more dependent on God, learning to to trust Him when it seems that we're weak and knowing that He is our strength. Amen? So that's the first season that we're discussing this morning, and, and I think it bleeds a little bit into the next season that we may endure. So a season of grief can sometimes lead us into a season of fear. A season of fear. In a season of fear, you find yourself scared, afraid of the things around you. Fear is an internal emotion, yes, but fear is always brought about by an external stimulus. It's always brought about by something that's around us. And I I said that it might bleed into or, or spread from or stem from the previous season, a season of grief, and here's what I mean by that. Perhaps you've lost someone or or seen something happen, read a news story even, 
And you suddenly begin to fear that if a loved one passed in a certain manner, perhaps the same thing could happen to you. If it happened to them, it could happen to me. I know, and I'll speak honestly again, this happened to me earlier this year when a friend and coworker passed away unexpectedly. She was young and vibrant and healthy by all intents and purposes. And I began to say to myself, could that be me? Could that be me? And it led to a season of fear. Maybe you've just lost your job and now you're fearful that the men are going to come and put the notice on your house that is being foreclosed. Or that you'll wake up in the morning to find your vehicle repossessed. You're afraid. As kids, we fear so many things. The shadows, the sounds, the boogeyman. If you're my wife, the Easter bunny. And those fears only change, they only grow, they only evolve. They do not abate as adults. I wish they did. I wish we could say we grew up and we're no longer fearful and everything's okay. But that's not the way it is. The fear follows us. And again, I want to tell you and I want to encourage you that you're not alone. I've confessed from this very stage many times my own uh, struggle with fear. And I say it's a season, but for me it feels like a lifetime. Because the things that you can think about, if you were to think about anything that you can be scared of, chances are, and I'm just being honest, I've been afraid of it. Spiders, scared of them. Heights, terrified. That, okay, let me just say, that ride at Six Flags Acrophobia, if you've been on that thing, you are nuts. You have lost your ever-loving mind. You couldn't pay me enough money. You could be like, I'm going to pay off every, you know, every bill you've ever had for the rest of your life. I'd be like, no, I'm not doing it. And there's another one. Dana showed me this video of this other one that is just, it's sicker than that. I'm going to try and find it out. I'll tell you. It's, it's ridiculous. Okay? Absolutely ridiculous. But you name it, I've been afraid of it. Burglars. Theft. Being fired. Being in a fire. Drowning, debt, the safety of my children, you name it, I've been afraid of it at some point in my life. I don't know why, but I've been scared. But little by little, and season by season, God's helped me through it. I've walked through the season, I've emerged, changed, even if I have to then go through the season again with something else entirely different, but it's a process. And as he's helped me, he's helped others in the Bible. And a lot of times he helps people with their fear um, through, you know, these great lifetimes of, of experiences, right? And they, they start along this road and they're fearful. And by the end of their lives, they're these great courageous men. But more often than not, what you'll find in the Bible is that these interactions over the season of fear happen as isolated incidents, as brief conversations, sometimes before uh, a big battle or sometimes in the process of a transformation or a big change that's going on in a person's life. You think of every time an angel shows up, almost always their first words are what? Do not be afraid. Fear not. And think about every time an angel showed up, it's because of a, a monumental transformation, a big change in focus. And I think the most poignant one for me is this interaction, very brief interaction that God has with Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. 
So to set the stage for the verse we're about to look at, Moses has just died. He's been the leader of the Israelite people for, uh, for a long period of time. He's just passed away, and God's speaking to Joshua and saying, now you're going to lead the people. And I can imagine this exchange happening between God and Joshua where he's saying, all right, you're going to lead the people. Are you ready? And it's one of those things where uh, Joshua's doing this. He's like, yeah, sure. Anytime we've been in those moments of shifting, of transformation, of new opportunities, we respond similarly, again, because change is difficult. But listen, listen, listen to what God says. We're going to read uh, Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. You may be familiar with this passage of Scripture, and if you're not, you're going to be very familiar with it soon because you'll notice some repetition. So starting in verse 6, it says, Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. In verse 7, it says, Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the left or to the right. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night, so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. And verse 9, this is my command, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Three times in four verses, God said, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Worded differently, he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's as if God is reminding Joshua in that moment, you have been through things before, you will be through things again, and I'll be there with you every step of the way. And it's an incredible moment because he's encouraging him to keep the faith. Don't be discouraged. Don't give in to fear. Just keep your eyes on me. It's like he's saying, son, eyes up here. Come on, focus. I've got this. You've got this. You can do this. And it's incredible, really, what God is doing because he's showing the correlation between faith and fear. And really, it's, it's as simple as this. It's this idea that the two cannot coexist. If you have fear, it equates to, at least marginally, a lack of faith. There's some area of your life where you are lacking faith. The presence of one indicates the absence of the other. So how do we begin to cultivate more faith? How do we begin to kick fear to the curb and instead ensure that our lives are driven by decisions made in faith, in confidence, in courage, and in strength? Well, we look to the Word. Again, I'm going to throw some at you. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. I'll read them verbatim. In Isaiah 41.10, this is what God says. He says, Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. Again, it is a promise, a promise, it is an assurance that when you're fearful, God will help you. He is there. Psalm 56:11 says, In God I've put my trust, and I am not afraid. What can man do to me? So here we are seeing the opposite end of the spectrum for David, this moment of great faith. What can man do to me? And in John excuse me, 1 John 4, 4, we get this promise where Jesus says, in life, you'll have troubles. 
If we're going to paraphrase and extrapolate today, it means in life you're going to have things to be afraid of. In this world, there are going to be difficult circumstances. But he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Nothing that you face, nothing that you endure, just as we sang and as we prayed, compares to the greatness of God. Now let me be very clear here. I'm not advocating for you to ignore the world around you. I'm not advocating for you to buy into the lie that ignorance is bliss. There are certainly things you should plan and prepare for, circumstances for which you should be ready. But what I am telling you today is that we shouldn't think about those things to the point of obsession. That we shouldn't dwell on those things to the point of control in our lives and losing it over fretting for these external fears. How is the Lord changing us through a season of fear? It's simply that. If a season of grief is teaching us to be more dependent on Him, more reliant on Him, then the season of fear is making us more confident in our faith. That through a season of fear, we begin to see over time that the things that we fear most often don't come to pass just the way we fear them. And in fact, oftentimes at the 11th hour, God intervenes in a way we would never expect. He's making us more confident in our faith. So that when you look at who has the driver's seat in your life, it is no longer fear, it is God. That's the change He hopes to bring about. And, and later in the service, we'll have a time to pray, a time to come to the altar. And I hope and I encourage you that if you're dealing with a season of fear, that you leave the fears at the altar. Let go and let God, because only He is greater. Amen? The last season that we'll talk about this morning, third and final season that we'll discuss, um, and it, again, is interrelated, a direct correlation from the previous, is a season of worry or doubt. And I grouped worry and doubt together because they're interrelated, they're cousins of one another. And I did this most, uh, most purposefully because of the fact that they're internal. Whereas fear is driven by external circumstances, worry and doubt are more often driven by internal conversations. Um, so you think about worry first and foremost. Uh, worry is always, always, always driven by the goal of measuring up. Almost every worry that you have centers around the concept of enough. Am I smart enough? Am I strong enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I wealthy enough? Am I good enough? And if I'm not any of these things now, will I ever be? It's a focus on ourselves rather than on God. It's a focus on our deficiencies rather than on God's sufficiency. It takes the focus off of Him where it should be and places it on all the things in our lives that we wish were different, that we wish were better, that we're, we wish were improved in some small way. And if we're not careful, these isolated worries build up over time and eventually give way to doubts. Because if we focus too much on all the things we wish were different in our lives, perhaps we begin to doubt that God can ever change them. We may not say it openly, we're good Christians, right? But we may begin to doubt that God still has the ability to do miracles. We may begin to doubt 
that He hears us when we pray. We may begin to doubt that He is real and present in the lives of ourselves and those closest to us. And let me tell you, that's exactly where Satan wants us to be. David, again, the Bible refers to him as a man after God's own heart. He had, again, great faith like Job, but dealt with his own fair share of sins and shortcomings throughout his life. Some by happenstance and others we know a lot more brazen, a lot more blatant. And this man dealt with doubt, certainly. We're going to turn to Psalm again, the book of Psalms, and we're going to start in Psalm 13. So in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, look at what it says. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? He was worried. And he was doubtful that God could hear him and that God would save him. Carrying on, we look at Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. This is, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. So at least here in this stage, he is acknowledging that God hears him when he prays, but God's not answering in the way that he sees fit, in the way that he thinks is best. And if you're surprised to see this great man of faith, the boy who would be king, dealing with worry, dealing with doubt, let me tell you, it's more common than you think. And in fact, I'd like to propose that this is one of the most common ways, if not the most common way, that Satan chooses to attack Christians. Why? Because he has to do nothing to the world around you. He doesn't have to manipulate something. He doesn't have to cause you to have a bad day because all worries and all doubts happen right here. It happens right here. And think of the multitudinous messages that we bring into our minds every single day. The thoughts that bounce around in our minds every single day. It's how he gets us. He finds that chink in our armor and he pounces on it. I'm about to blow your minds with something. Uh, I delivered it in first service and it may be a spiritual stretch. I'm going to preface it with that. But I thought it was really, really cool and I'm going to continue to to use it, okay? I'm going to blow your minds. If you know some things about me, you know I like Star Wars, I like Boy Meets World, and I like words. I love books, I love to study words and word history. So almost every time I get up here I teach you something about a word. And so this is your free word fact of the day, okay? And if you text 6252 to my number I'll sign you up for word facts of the day. I'm just kidding. Uh, But this is your word fact for the day. Ready? The word worry. The word worry comes from a word that in Old English means to uh, kill or injure by grabbing the throat and shaking violently. It's pretty graphic, right? Well, look at this. You ready? All right. So, so we know that that's a way that the, the worry means. We know that it's a method of killing used by a lot of different animals, including, let me, let me put this out there, the lion. 
Right? This is how a lion kills its prey. When we look at 1 Peter 5.8, what does Peter write? Beware, your enemy is like a lion who walks to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. He says, because of this fact, you should be alert and sober-minded at all times. Alert and sober-minded, not given into influence in your mind with worries and with doubts. Because if you are, Satan, like the lion that he is, will pounce. And he'll grip you with worry. And when, when they do this, right, this is getting National Geographic for a moment, but when animals attack in this way, dogs, wolves, lions, when they attack in this way, they do so because it brings about a very specific response in the prey. It is oftentimes not to kill them. Are you ready? Satan does not use worry and doubt oftentimes to kill you, but this is what happens to the prey. When they do this, what they call the throat clamp, right? Put that on a t-shirt. I don't know. Throat clamp. It's crazy. But look, this is what happens. It makes the prey disoriented, dizzy, and sends them into a state of shock. How does worry affect us? How does doubt affect us? It can make us disoriented. We don't know which way is up. We don't know where to go. The sky's falling. Will I ever be enough? Will I ever have enough? It can make us dizzy. We can't focus our eyes firmly on God because the hits just keep on coming. It can make us in a state of shock because we don't know where else to go. And we don't know where else to turn. And we don't know what else to do. I told you it was a stretch, but I think it's prevalent. I think it makes perfect sense. Because again, Satan doesn't have to manipulate anything in the world around you to attack you with worry or doubt. All he has to do is use the thoughts you're already having. So how do we deal with this, Jordan? How do we start to fight back against worry and doubt? We listen to Jesus, for one. Jesus spoke on multiple occasions about being anxious, about being worried. He told us that we're worth more than many sparrows, and not a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing about it. He told us not to worry about where our food or our clothing would come from. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Paul, when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, he mirrored the teachings of Jesus in a lot of ways. He mirrored the teachings of Jesus in that it's not simply enough to stop doing a behavior. In fact, in the letter to the Philippians, you'll read that Paul encourages people to replace ungodly behaviors with godly behaviors. Uh, A poignant example from uh, Jesus, perhaps you've heard of, is it's not enough not to be angry, right? Jesus says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. But he also says in the subsequent verses that if you are giving a sacrifice and you think that someone else may be angry with you, you're to go and make amends. So it's not enough to simply change a behavior. We must replace a behavior with a godly behavior. So if we look at Philippians 4, 6, and 7, this is what Paul writes. Don't worry about anything. So that's the behavior you're stopping. And this is the replacement behavior. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Then, then, this is a product of that action cause and effect. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. 
There is a promise, a surefire way for us to receive the peace of God, to be victorious and joyful even as we endure a season of worry and doubt. But it requires something of us. And what is that? To pray, yes, but to thank God. To thank Him for what He's already done. Because when we go to Him in thanksgiving, we put the focus back on God. When we go to Him and we say, thank you for what you've done in my life, we begin to realize and remember all the times that He's shown up and shown out. And suddenly it makes our worries and our doubts slip away. We start again to focus on His sufficiency instead of our deficiencies. The places where He is strong rather than the places where we are weak. The places where He is unchanging instead of the places we wish would change in us. I talked to a woman this week at work who had this view, and it happened to align perfectly with this message today. This is a woman who um, is dealing with a lot right now. Um, She uh, recently had a flood at her house, and her home was damaged. A lot of things in her home were damaged. She's dealing with some other things, some medical issues as well. And I, I saw her in the hallway, and I asked. I simply said, how are things going? And she began to give me this list of, well, this is still going on, and this is going on, and this is happening, and this is going on. And worse yet, the latest news was insurance has said they're not covering the damage to her home. So she's left in a difficult place. But as we ended our conversation, she looked at me right in my eyes, right in my optical stems, and said, but we're going to be okay because we have a lot to be thankful for. And I thought in that moment, you just rattled off a list of so many things that are going terribly wrong, a list under the weight of which other people would crumble. But she didn't crumble. She didn't give in to those worries and those doubts that could have been bouncing around in her mind. Why? Because she chose instead to be thankful for what she did have instead of fretful over what she didn't. And I know that you're probably thinking, Jordan, man, that sounds great. It's easier said than done. You don't know me. You don't know where I'm at. You don't know the things that are going on in my own mind and my own life. And I don't, but I know where I am. I've been nothing but real with you this morning, so I'll just keep being real. I know where I am. I know the season of life that I'm in. And right now it's this one. Specifically, two worries in my mind that have taken the forefront over the past several weeks. The first, what will people think? How do people view me? And I've given a lot of stock and a lot of thought to the impact that my decisions may have on other people that aren't my family, that aren't my friends. They could be completely indifferent. And if I'm not careful, I start to act like a robot and I make decisions based on how I think it's going to impact people around me. And I, I weigh their view of me more heavily than I weigh God's view of me. And the other worry that I've dealt with, and I know it sounds silly, is turning 30. I know it sounds silly. I'm young. I've got a lot of life left to live. I've experienced a lot of things. And and I, I hope to continue to do wonderful and amazing things, God willing. But I'm seeing this time in my life, and I'm, I'm realizing that I'm up against this arbitrary, self-imposed deadline. And I start to say, well, I haven't done all that I wanted to do, and I haven't seen all that I wanted to see. And, you know, one chapter of my life is closing. And so that's where I've been. These are the worries that bounce around in my head. But what I've had to slowly do 
is exactly what the Word says to do, and go to Him in thanks, to cultivate this attitude of gratitude, and have the ability that says, God, let me start to view myself as you see me. Let me be thankful for your love, for your guidance, for your provision, for your mercy, for your grace. And if the people around me don't agree with my decisions, if I know it's a God-ordained decision, if I can stand on confidence of the Word, as David said, what can man do to me? Likewise, as I look ahead toward turning 30 in a few months, why not instead of being fretful over the things that I haven't done or haven't seen or haven't experienced, why not instead start to be thankful for all that I have achieved, for all that I have experienced, and thankful that as the, the pages of my life turn over into a new decade, it's a fresh start, it's a new beginning. I can experience and do more incredible things. That's got to be our response. And as we look at this third season, as we, we begin to wrap up today, what I really think the change is for a season of worry and doubt is it's returning our focus to all that he's already done for us. If we're already working on saying, all right, we're changing in a way that makes us more uh, dependent on him, more reliant on him and more confident in our faith, I dare say that this makes us more thankful people. More thankful Christians. Because if we go back to that passage, it doesn't say sometimes pray to him and tell him what you want and other times go to him in thanks. It is every single prayer. Tell him what you need, thank him for what he's done, and then go about your life with the peace that comes as a result. But far too often, we stop at that first one. Pray about everything. All right, God, I'm going to pray about everything. I'll listen to your word. I need this, and I want this, and make this happen. And we lay out our laundry list. And then we sign off and say, see you later. Without ever once thanking him for the very fact that we had breath in our lungs to pray that prayer in the first place. We need to become more thankful people, and it happens as a result of a season of worry and doubt. That's the change that happens as we walk through this difficult part of our lives. Would you stand with me this morning, church? I know it's not easy to talk about these difficult seasons. I know it's not easy to be hyper-focused on the things that we endure that maybe aren't great right now. But what I hope you'll take from this is the encouragement that you're not alone, that God is there, and He's walking with you through this time. And I want to leave you with some practical advice. I don't know where you are. I don't know what season you're in. In a moment we'll have a time to pray, and I hope you'll come to these altars and you'll uh, pray about whatever season in life you may find yourself. Remember, it's not just these three. There's many others. But what I want to give you is some practical things that you can take with you to be prepared. Because remember, seasons are cyclical. Leaving one season means entering into another season. So how can we be prepared? How can we be ready for what's to come? Like the seasons that we endure in life, we've got to respond appropriately. You need a, a light jacket in fall. You need a heavy winter coat in winter. You need sunscreen in summer. You need an umbrella in spring. Although again, I have to point out, just it's Georgia, have an umbrella always. Just be ready. 
So here's four practical things that you can do. You ready? These apply no matter what season you're in. Even if your life is great right now, you're like, Jordan, dude, I'm not there right now. When you get there, remember these four. You ready? First and foremost, trust God and trust the process. Trust God and trust the process. Do not try to shortchange yourself. Do not try to shortcut yourself. Do not pull the plug on what he's doing or try to find the easy way out because it's only through, remember, it is only through these seasons that we are able to change and become who God is making us to be. We have to walk through it. But remember, he is with us. Trust God and trust the process. He's using this season for incredible things. The second thing, confess to one another. There's a verse in scripture that says, confess to one another and pray for one another. It says, bear each other's burdens. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Confess to one another. Don't suffer in silence. Don't walk through this season alone. Tell somebody what season of life you're in, what you're going through, because look, God gave me this. I thought it was cool. I'm not taking any credit for it. But look, your breakdown can lead to somebody else's breakthrough if you'll only open your mouth and talk about it. Let me be the first to break down the lie today. You do not have to be perfect. You were not meant to be perfect. You were not meant to have it all together. Why? Because that's why we have God, who is perfect, who does have it all together. So quit trying to think you gotta carry it on your own. Quit trying to think you gotta suffer in silence. Quit trying to think that you're the only one dealing with what you're dealing with right now. And talk to somebody. The third thing is this, pray. The other half of that scripture, confess and pray. Pray. And when you get done praying, guess what? Pray some more. If you're not going through a difficult season right now and you have nothing to pray for yourself about, pray for somebody else. Pray, 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 pray. Why? Because this focuses your attention on Him instead of on the season around you or within you. Focus on Him, lean on Him, rely on Him, go to Him, pray. The fourth way that you can prepare, the the fourth piece of practical advice for you today is remember and take heart in the fact that what you're dealing with will not last forever. It does not last forever and it may not feel like it, whether you're on day one or day 100, it feels like forever, but it is not forever because there's only one who lasts forever, amen? There's only one thing that lasts forever and it's our eternal promise in Christ Jesus. And I wanna point you, I'm gonna leave you with this, one of my most favorite scriptures in all the Bible. It was the very first scripture I used the very first time that I spoke publicly at a see you at the pole, prayer at the flag event in 2006. It was this scripture right here, 2 Corinthians 4:17. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Our light and momentary afflictions are working for us a glory that will never end and a life that will never cease with a God who never changes. That's the point of all of this, is to walk through life so that we can get eternal life. Don't lose sight because I tell you, I guarantee you, if you remember that and you hold anything up, anything you endure up to the light of eternity, it pales in comparison. We sang today, nothing compares. No season compares. These altars are gonna be open in a moment. I'll pray and you're welcome to come about this or anything else going on in your life. 
If you see others come, I'd encourage you to come and pray for them. Even if you don't know what's going on, pray for them, pray with them. If they're a friend, if they're a loved one, if there's someone you care about, let's pray. We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.